Gracious God, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you that these texts are living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword that speaks to us through the generations today. In your holy name, amen. Our text today comes from John chapter 12. This is the story as referred to as the anointing in Bethany. Jesus is anointed by Mary, his friend, but not in the usual sense of anointing on the head, but anointing his feet. What on earth is this woman doing? And Jesus just says, leave her alone? There must be something more to this passage. Hear the words of scripture. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointing Jesus' feet and wiping them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, the one of his disciples about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse, and he used to steal what was put into it. And Jesus said, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, just days before Wes and I were married, we got into a bit of an argument about the cost of the wedding. I argued that it was an occasion for extravagance and impracticality. It was a wedding. And Wes argued that it should be practical and that it would be foolish for him to spend $10 on a silk tie that he would never wear again. He assumed he was on the side of the angels. He argued that he was right and he was reasonable. And I argued that a wedding was uh, an occasion for some extravagance. And you know what? It's 50 years later, and I read this text this week, and I realize I was right all along. <laughs> extravagance is on the side of Jesus. Or do I need to rethink some things? You know, we were, we considered ourselves Depression-era children, though it, it was our parents who were in the Depression. We just lived it vicariously, you know, like clean your plate because of those starving children in China. And so, as we look at this passage of Mary's extravagance, it goes against the grain of what we were taught and what Jesus stood for. Let us pray. 
God, help us to know that as we walk with you, it may mean there are times that we're completely thrown off by extravagant interruptions, life and death interruptions. Help us to listen carefully to your voice. In your holy name we ask, amen. You know, all of us know all too well that in life there are those moments of interruption that you find yourself in a place that you never thought you would be. Perhaps it's when suddenly you take a long look into someone's eyes and you realize, oh my gosh, I'm falling in love. Or maybe it's years and years later and you're looking in those eyes and you say, I'm falling in love again, or I still love this person, and it feels good. Life has changed a bit. Sometimes an interruption can be a crisis. I think of the farmers in the state of Nebraska, oh my gosh, and the amount of cattle and pigs that they have lost. What a crisis, an interruption to their life completely. Sometimes the interruptions are rather subtle, They just sort of happen, and we don't make a big deal about it, but it does change things. For instance, walking in and seeing that piano, now silent, and remembering back when there was a little girl at that piano bench playing her lesson every day and yelling, Mom, you're ruining my life, and still playing the piano. And remembering, you know, she's all grown up and suddenly tears well up and you realize that time changed. Yeah, interruptions propel us into a future, sometimes a future we don't expect, we don't ask for. It means giving up a life that we knew, and we may be tempted to want to hang on to it and resist, but you know, God never lets us spend too much time in the past. God is in the business of moving us on. So here we are, the day that Jesus, before he enters Jerusalem for his very last time. This is just a week before his crucifixion here. And he stops to see his old friends, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. They live in a suburb of Jerusalem called Bethany, within walking distance. This little family was so near and dear to Jesus. He was close to them as a brother. He loved them. John tells us, and and we don't know why, but maybe there is never a why to love. They call him Lord. They know who he was. But they weren't his disciples in in the formal sense of being a disciple. They were his friends three people, and he could be in their presence and be just a man, or he could be the Messiah. What a wonderful relationship. It it was just a few days before that he performed a miracle for that family at that house. The sister sent a message to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill, meaning Lazarus. And so Jesus had to cross the Jordan to get to them, and he knew full well that he was too late. And so we see Jesus, the man, standing at the tomb with tears, crying, 
weeping over his friend. And then Jesus the Messiah calling him out of the tomb, raising Lazarus from the dead. A miracle. Now Jesus is coming back to Bethany, and the chief priests are hot on his trail. You know, over the time, chatting with a Samaritan woman at the well is one thing. And, you know, healing a blind man on the Sabbath, ah, that's another thing. But it's another thing altogether to revive a corpse by raising Lazarus from the dead. It put Jesus on the top of the religious rites most wanted list. They're after him. His days are numbered, and he knows it. So when he arrives at his friend's house in Bethany with the disciples, you probably could see on his face, knowing what he is facing and is after. So they take Jesus in, his friends. They take care of him. They prepare a supper one last night, shutting out the world. Martha is cooking, as she always does, taking charge. Lazarus, it says, is there. Maybe he's still weak from four days in the tomb. Those are the ones Jesus was closest to. And, and suddenly Mary kind of slips away and, and goes into another room. And Martha probably thought, well, that's Mary. She's the moody one, leaving me here to do all the work. Finally, they have a wonderful meal. And I can imagine they share their hopes and they name their fears. Lazarus sitting there with Jesus, unaware that he himself is the cause of Jesus' great concern that night. Because, you see, a trade had occurred, and Lazarus doesn't even know it. Jesus was pretty safe as long as he stayed on the other side of the Jordan, away from his enemies. But by returning to Jerusalem to save his friend, to raise him from the dead, he signed his own death warrant. But Jesus always practiced what he preached, and he was willing to trade his life for the life of his friend, Lazarus. What a story. No one knows that notices Mary is not there for a while, and Suddenly she comes back and she's carrying this clay jar um, and doesn't say a word, but she kneels at Jesus' feet and she breaks off the neck of the jar and the smell, the aroma of the spikenard, it's sort of between ginseng and mint and pretty fragrant, fills the room and all eyes are on her. What is she doing? This woman, this woman is doing exactly what a decent woman in that culture would not do, and this is totally out of character for Mary. First, she loosens her hair in a room full of men, and a respectable woman would never do that. She pours balm on Jesus' feet, and that was not done. Maybe his head, but not his feet and she touches him. A woman caressing the feet of a rabbi? It wasn't done, even if she was his best friend. 
And then she takes her hair and wipes his feet, wipes the salve. You know, this is bizarre behavior, unexplainable. In that culture, interestingly enough, men would wipe their hands on the hair of slave women, like a towel. Slave women would put their hair down for men to wipe their hands. That was strange. The point is that Mary's life has been completely interrupted, and she knows the truth now. You know, most of us are just caught up in the bizarre act of, of this woman acting strange instead of looking at the deeper meaning. Yeah, she loved him. She's sad. You know, she can act out if she wants to. But this woman has a name. It's Mary. This woman has a relationship with Jesus, his friend. She's not a stranger. She's not a sinner. She's his longtime friend. And it makes this act all the more peculiar. She loves him. She knows him. He loves her. They're friends. So why this public display of affection in front of the disciples? It's extravagant. It's excessive. It's overboard, as Judas is quick to point out. Well, why wasn't this ointment sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He wanted to know. A day laborer of that time, it was their wages for a whole year, and she's wasting it on the feet of Jesus for Pete's sake? You can imagine Judas's concern. It sort of reminded me when Wes gave me a bottle of Chanel number no. 5, and I savored every drop of that, and 22 years later, it smelled more like vinegar than perfume. <laughs> but we savor those things. We save them for special occasions. Don't waste them. Basically, don't ever use them. Leave her alone, Jesus says. She is using this for my burial. You'll always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. You know, I think that's an odd thing to say. It's an odd thing what Mary did. Jesus, the champion of the poor, who always made a regular practice of putting their needs before his own, is suddenly pulling rank and saying, leave her alone. You'll always have poor to look after for to the end of time. But now my time's running out. Take care of me. Whatever Mary thought about what she did and whatever anyone else in that room thought, Jesus knew that this was a message from God. This was important. This was not some hysterical woman gone mad. This was a prophetic act of a thoughtful woman listening to God. Everything around her was significant. Judas, the betrayer, challenging her act. The flask of nard. Was it left over from Lazarus' burial? You know, you can just imagine the air was dense with death. There might have been some doubt of whose death, but Mary's act reveals the truth. She knows that it is Jesus who is dying, and so does he. You know, that's what happens 
when life interrupts, sometimes we do things we would never do. We make amends. We become extravagant. We reach out to where we would not reach out before. How sad that it takes an interruption to do that. But I wonder if Mary stood in front of Jesus with that flask in her hand, just for a moment, thinking, you know, this could go either way. I could anoint his head, and they would proclaim him a king. That would be acceptable. She could have done that, but that's not what she did. She dropped to her knees. She poured nard on his feet, which meant only one thing. The only people who got their feet anointed was a dead man. And she knew that, and Jesus knew that. When he said, leave her alone, don't let anyone prevent her from doing what she is doing. You know, there was nothing reasonable or economical or prudent about the death of this man, Jesus, just as there was nothing prudent or reasonable about his life. In Jesus, the extravagance of God's love was made flesh for us. In him, the excessiveness of God's mercy is manifest, love and mercy. For us today, it's ours. So today, we're invited to the Lord's table. As you come to this banquet, to this supper, do you find yourself closer to Mary or to Judas? When you come, are you filled more with gratitude or are you complaining? If you're unhappy with life, there's no amount of money or success or relationships or health will help you. The way to find joy is walking with God through all of those interruptions because they will always be there and giving thanks, extravagant thanks for God's love and God's mercy. Amen.